VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we are talking about an old-school Manchester United comeback as Rasmus Ho-Ho-Hoyland finally scores in the <laughs> Premier League to beat Aston Villa. Thank you, Alison Rudd, for laughing at that one. Uh, we'll also be talking about Newcastle, Nottingham Forest, Luton, Dominic Solanke and picking our favourite moments of 2023. And joining me, Tom Clark. There we go. This is great. This is so much fun. So festive, and we're recording on the 27th as well, not even on Christmas Day. Uh, not in the studio for once, as you can already tell, but from various parts of the country. We've got two of the finest football writers in the land, desperate to bring us some festive cheer. It's Alison Rudd, who's already proved that, and Molly Hudson. <laughs> uh, and for the final time this year, we've got a former footballer whose last festive fixture of his career came on December 28th and saw the Grimsby Town team that he played for beat my beloved Lincoln City 2 0. Yes! Really it's a Christmas miracle that we can even be on the show together. Gregor Robertson, you're here again. There you go, mate. We've made it to Christmas with facts about your career at the start of every show. Are we going to knock them in the head for 2024? Or? Well, I think the listeners should decide. Get in touch, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. We've just got another six months to go. Um, guys and gals, Merry Christmas, Happy Easter, etc. Um, how, how was the big day for everyone? Anyone get any good football-related gifts? No, but I did buy I did buy sporting gifts and I bought myself one. So uh, we have a pool table in my house and we've slowly broken all the pool cues. So I bought personalised pool cues for the family with nicknames emblazoned on them. And the only place that I could find that did that, I thought, wow, I found the place, pressed, pay, and then realised it's in Australia. <laughs> and then and then had to spend an absolute fortune in shipping and then a fortune in VAT and tax. So uh, my inability to shop wisely uh, came back to punish me. But we do have four beautiful pool cues in the house. Well, and obviously the next question is, what is your nickname on your pool cue? Well, it should be Rudster, but I'm not, as I've just explained, I, I hate shopping. So I just very quickly put Ali on it without thinking. Boo. I know, Boo. I know. I think we might have to, if we're feeling generous next Christmas, get you another pool cue that says Rudster on it. Um, <laughs> or just start calling you Rudster. Yeah, we could just start calling you Rudster, starting right now. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. Uh, Molly, Gregor and the Rudster. I, I've, I've Many fun, festive treats in uh, my house, family house in Salford, including playing a bit of darts. Alison, we also got a bit of um, sporting action on the go. My brother has beaten me several times and it's rather demoralising. And he also asked me a quiz question, which I'm going to give to you lot now. Um, other than Bobby Charlton, there are eight players who have won the World Cup, the Ballon d'Or, and the European Cup slash Champions League. How? Who are they? How many can you name? 
Anyone? I'm going to get in very, very early here and say Messi and Zidane and then leave you lot to it. Correct, Molly. Well done. That's two straight off the bat. Gregor, Ali, sorry, Gregor, Rudster, any others? <laughs> get it right. I'm going to, I have, I just, there's just, there's, there's, <laughs> I have, when, whenever there's an opportunity to mention Franz Beckenbauer, I grab it because, <laughs> because he is part of the funniest line ever uttered that revolves around football and comedy which is the philosopher's football match that Monty Python did. I think it's Monty Python's best ever sketch. It's philosopher's football. It's um, Germany against Greece. And the Germany lineup for those people who don't remember the sketch. And if you don't, please just go onto YouTube and find it. Um, the Germans come out and they're, they're all philosophers. There's Nobby Hegel and there's Nietzsche. And then there's Beckenbauer and the commentator says, Beckenbauer, obviously a bit of a surprise there because it's not supposed to be real footballers and it makes me giggle every <laughs> single time. Excellent. Well, that you are right, as well as it being very funny in a Monty Python sketch, he is also a correct answer. Gregor, have you got anything to offer? Well, I haven't quite a bit of time to think now. I'll say Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho, yeah, very good. Any others? I'm not going to drag this out too long. You've all done. You've all done better than me. So the reason for doing this question is that I managed Lionel Messi and that was it for a long, long time. It took me about 24 hours. So much so that my 24-year-old sister, who has basically no interest in football, she managed to get not only uh, Zidane, but also Ronaldinho before I did. So so, so she is actually taking over the hosting of the podcast from next year. <laughs> this is my final show. Uh, my sister Hannah will be hosting from this time next year. Um, just for those listening, so that you can play along with your family at home and torture them, Gerd Muller is another one. Rossi from Italy in the 80s. Rivaldo. Of course, Rivaldo. another one. And the toughest one of the lot, Kaka, who was in the 2002 Brazil squad um, and then also, also uh, starred for AC Milan and got himself the Ballon d'Or. Uh, so there you go. There you go, listeners. You can torture your family and friends with that question and I'm sure you will all do better than me. Um, the only other significant moment, I'm loving this Christmas bells in the background. I can't work out whether it's someone's dog or cat with a little kind of bell around their neck or it's just the rudster playing funny games. But <laughs> either way, I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, the only other significant thing of my Christmas festivities was a Boxing Day trip to Sinsel Bank where I watched Lincoln lose 1-0 in the last minute against Bolton. But I did get myself a reduced away shirt in the sales, which made me feel like a 10-year-old again. And that was brilliant. And then I returned home and watched Manchester United beat Aston Villa. Who'd have thunk it? Not me, that's for sure. Especially not when they were 2-0 down. Um, it felt very retro, didn't it? This performance and this match. It felt very kind of old school Manchester United. Um, and as Chris, a Aston Villa fan who is a listener, said, uh, I think I've seen this happen at least five times in my life already. We go 2-0 up against Manchester United and still manage to lose. I thought they were going to be crap. How have we done it again? Um, so I'm actually going to do what we normally do with Manchester United when they've played badly, and I'm going to start with Aston Villa, Gregor. Um, this was a remarkably odd performance, wasn't it, for Unai Emery's side? I mean, I couldn't believe how many times they kept quite literally just passing the ball to Manchester United. Yeah, I mean, you know, the goals were kind of really well executed, uh, set plays, which gave them the advantage. And you thought after the, you know, slipping up against Sheffield United, uh, funnily enough, after I'd given the, the kiss of death and writing a feature saying why they're in, <laughs> yes. in the title race, um, you thought that this was going to be the perfect response. But you're right, they did basically gift Manchester United, particularly the first goal, 
when uh, uh, Diego Carlos, I think it was, played a really sloppy pass into midfield and then uh, United were off. But United do deserve some credit. I'm, al- I'm always slightly hesitant to give a team too much credit when, you know, I've had, we've had this conversation many, many times in the podcast. 2-0 down is the easiest scoreline in the world to be uh, a professional footballer. And Manchester United kind of seem to need that. They need something to kick-start them mm. in every game now. And in fairness, this very much did. And they were they were they were pretty, they were outstanding really in the second half. So many players. Fernandez, despite all his sort of you know yapping and moaning, uh, was brilliant. Some of his through balls were outstanding. Um, Garnacho was 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 supreme. And and that was a huge moment for Hoyland as well. He sort of kind of cathartic uh, celebration at the end. So, yeah, it was a big one. It was a big one for them. But uh, you know, a few days earlier they lost limply at West Ham. Um, I would, I, I, you know, as we've done many times, you think is this going to be the start of something? I don't think so. Why? Why, why not? Because because I, I agree with all of your points. Um, and as I say, I was watching the game. I I just got back from Lincoln, so I kind of missed the first twenty minutes and. My brother was going up oh, 2-0 and I was running in and watching the goals and going, oh my God, what look at that defending. That's so bad. God, he's going to get sacked. And then I came and watched it and was like, they're all over them. Yeah. So they, they, they did play well, didn't they, Manchester United? That's the thing. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just a bit of individual brilliance as much as Garnacho was excellent. I thought they were, they pressed really well. And as much as Villa gave them the ball, I thought they were really good. Why, why do you say you just don't think this is a capitalist moment? Well, it's not sustainable to, to need... To be, you know, to have a kick up the arse, basically, to start performing, and that's been that's been a, a recurring theme. So, you know, if if, in, if you're not going to perform at that sort of level, that intensity and that, um, you know, that kind of commitment, essentially, it's not commitment. It's not the right word, but like, as you say, you're that sort of drive and the pressing and and intensity of their play. If, if they can't do that from the start of a game, then there's it's not sustainable. Um, Alison, you were um, you were at uh, West Ham, as Gregor mentioned, for that kind of rather limp performance, and you heard from Eric Ten Hag afterwards. What do you, what do you make of both that match and this Aston Villa performance, and in terms of some of the points Gregor's made? Yeah, well, the, I think I don't want to be mean, but the, I felt there was a, a quite a bit of desperation about what we saw from Manchester United against Villa, because it was it was pretty abysmal at the London Stadium. There was very little, you know, if you try and look for the positives from that, there was very little. And the only thing I could think of to say positive was that A, Ten Hag afterwards looked like he cared. Often he seems quite impassive, but he looked to me quite emotional. First time I've seen him emotional um, about, you know, when he was asked about the message to the fans and he, he just, it was as though it just hit him that, he was letting quite a lot of people down, or his, him and his team were. And I, I thought, well, they're not, you know, they just don't look like a team that can score goals. How are they going to mend this? And one, one suggestion, which I didn't really believe, but I put forward, was that um, once they've got Christian Eriksen fully fit and starting a game with Rasmus, Rasmus Hoyland, who's his compatriot, that then maybe that some of the some of the it's not just that I wasn't thinking like obviously oh Ericsson will pass to Hoyland because they are both Danish I was just thinking it Ericsson's presence injects a bit of thoughtfulness into proceedings and that rubs off on people that it's not it's not oh that 
did that run didn't work or well, we don't know what to do now it's it's like that that they think two or three steps ahead and there's a bit of intelligence to their football and i may be right or wrong but there was more intelligence with ericsson on the pitch and i think it was just it cannot be overstated how important it was that rasmus hoyland scored because it was getting absolutely ridiculous and everyone no matter their feelings about Manchester United, we're, we're starting to feel really sorry for him. He's young, he's young, big price tag. Not, not only not scoring, but not even getting on the ball, not, not getting close. It was just, you know, domestic football. He looked like the Premier League was like the worst place he could be. So I felt, I didn't think they did play that well in the first half. Um, second half, there must have been this sense of in the dressing room, look, you know, it, we can't get worse than this. There, you know, we've got people watching in the stands who've suddenly, you know, new will come onto this, I know, but, you know, who could be determining our future. We have to impress. So they did that thing they do where they remember who they are and they suddenly find reserves of energy and desire, all, all the qualities that were completely missing at the London sta uh, Stadium, I have to say, because that was a dreadful match. Uh, West Ham weren't particularly good apart from 15 to 20 minutes. That, that game was there for taking if you were a half reasonable team. It was it was really quite embarrassing how bad that was. So there's been an injection of panic and emotion and uh, intelligence um, by having Ericsson on the pitch. But whether it, whether it's sustainable, I don't. Well, time will tell. But it was it was it, it was so needed. I can't tell you how needed it was. I think I think strange things would have happened if they'd lost that game. Mm, interesting. We'll come on to the potential for strange things and people st sat in the stands in just a second. Molly, what was your take on the game generally? Because, I mean, as much as I agree with Alison uh, and Gregor's points, I do think there's a sense that whilst this might not be a turning point, there are moments that are happening that feel like you're kind of turning a, a, a ship around and it'll take a long time. But I think Andre Onana continues to look like a better goalkeeper. He made a brilliant save. Uh when going the wrong way initially, and I thought his distribution was excellent. And as Alison says, as much as Rasmus Hoyland hasn't scored, he now has. And I, I don't know whether it was Christmas, but I definitely agreed with Ali McCoyst on commentary where I was just delighted for him. Um, do, do you agree with the guys with their slight kind of scepticism around Manchester United, or do you think there's a bit more reason to be hopeful? If there was a turning point, I think it was Aston Villa going tuning up and then just falling apart. I, uh, I, I was... I was uh, speaking to some friends and we were like, oh, exa basically exactly the same as you said, you know, Ten Hag could be in trouble here. They've been awful. Um, Villa started so well. They were in control. Um, and then it was it was almost like, it's going back to that whole thing about a 2-0 being like a dangerous scoreline. I mean, it shouldn't be really when you're Aston Villa and you're dominating against a team who are frankly not very good. Um, but... It was, um, and uh, and for me, the the, the celebration from from Hoydent, it it just sort of reminds you, I think, that we watch football and look, we just expect these players to deliver, right? That a lot of them are young lads. He's he's come from a different country. He's had to settle in at a club which is not the most stable of environments right now. Let's be honest, and I think we sometimes forget the the personal emotional like stress that must be to go through and just to watch him 
in that moment, just pure joy and also that of his teammates. I mean, that if you're looking for a positive sign, then that is a positive sign, I suppose. They were all absolutely delighted for him. I mean, Onana took the, the opportunity to sprint the length of the pitch um, to congratulate him. Um, so, yeah, that that's my abiding memory of the game, that I did watch it thinking, God, this lad couldn't almost couldn't get any worse. Um, he, he didn't look like scoring at all. Um, and then it just, it, it fell in and it was like the weight had been lifted off of him, off of Ten Hag, um, off of, off of everyone at the club really. Um, but like Ali, uh, and Gregor said, I don't know how long-term that is or whether it's just another sort of one-off comeback. I'm not sure it's uh, the, the Fergie years comeback, which obviously the commentary team were talking about. It feels a little bit different than that these days. Well, it might have been the several gin and tonics I've had, but I was getting quite excited by it. And I thought Rasmus Hoyland had done quite well. But uh, maybe, maybe my hangover will kick in. I'll Speak change my mind. Salford as well, Tom, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that must be it. That must be it. Um, well, now let me take you to a different part of my Christmas festivities. Uh, it was Christmas Eve. It was tw- the 24th of December. Uh, I was editing on the Times uh, sports desk. And about two o'clock in the afternoon, I got an email from our colleague, Matt Lawton, that said, Ratcliffe happening today. And I may or may not have said, oh, the sake because uh, I was just lying up my afternoon sherry thinking here we go nice quiet day uh, and then Jim Gratcliffe decides to in play an interesting PR move which I thought which was to turn every journalist working on Christmas Eve against him uh, but he has well looks to be completing his 25% uh, takeover stake in Manchester United we're waiting for the Premier League to ratify that and um, Alison what have you made of the kind of initial murmurs coming out of the deal and the Ratcliffe camp. He obviously put out this kind of open letter asking for time and patience uh, from the fans. Um, and Paul Hirsch writing today on the Times website that Manchester United must consult Ineos on every transfer. The club are invited, obliged to inform Ratcliffe's Ineos group of any transfers and major sporting decisions while their investment is being ratified. Do you think this is a cause for hope and optimism for United fans? It, it's a bit underwhelming to me, to be honest. First of all, some someone like Radcliffe with his his backstory, his wealth, to only own 25% of the club. It does, I think that will always sound a bit naff, to be completely honest. And he, there is a limit. He's not a saviour financially anyway. Financial fair play won't allow him to. So it's a bit like the Saudis taking over at Newcastle. They can pump money into everything but players, really, to stay on the right side of FFP. I, I don't know if I was if I was a Man United fan, I would be bewildered about what it really means. It sounds a bit bureaucratic, doesn't it? Um, and like there might be loads of paperwork, and that's not what gets people excited, and that's not what changes clubs around. So the best case scenario I can see is that their sort of three-person panel is wise. And not bickering, and they come up with some um, good suge- and imaginative suggestions on how to help Ten Hag improve the team without spending too much money, which sounds a bit pipe dreamy, really. Um, in the, I don't know, just just lacks oomph the whole thing to me. It's peculiar and it's interesting and it's big news for that reason. But in terms of what it will do for Manchester United, I'm not sure it'll be you know, magnificent. Gregor? 
Yeah, I mean, it is. It, I kind of agree. It is underwhelming. It's like, you know, just by the fact that he's not he's not really in control. I mean, whatever you say, you can say, yeah, he's in control of the footballing department. But I, I really struggle to see how that that really works. But the main thing you 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 hope for Manchester United is that they just you know employ some football expertise. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if they there's been you know talk about them about who they might appoint as a sporting director or as a, a director of football, uh, something which Manchester United remarkably have really lacked throughout the Glazers' tenure. So, just some some leadership, some leadership on the football side, and yeah, and you know, you saw Dave Dave Brailsford sitting in the stand. He's not someone with you would say has football expertise, but. You know, he's he's been said to kind of he's undertaken a, a review of the of the sporting side of the business, and I, I'm sure he will say that we need someone who knows what they're doing in terms of building a squad and taking taking the important decisions. Because up until now, it's been taken by people by businessmen who have no knowledge of football whatsoever. Um, so that fundamentally, out of all of this, that's the thing that Manchester United fans will hope and pray changes. There's some expertise and guidance and actual, you know, a compass about where they're going as a football club, not as a business. Mm. Interesting times ahead for Manchester United, that's for sure. As I mentioned, Paul Hirsch reporting on the Times website today about what this deal might mean. But you can also find lots of great profiles and pieces of analysis from Matt Dickinson and Matt Lawton too. Uh, Now, another club who have been doing slightly better off the pitch in terms of their planning and sporting directors are Newcastle United. Again, they've got big ambitions for the top, but beaten again in December. It's not been a good run for them, this time by Nottingham Forest at home. Uh, Something of a coupon buster, as my uncle would have called this result. Uh, And since beating Manchester United on December the 2nd, um, it's been a dismal run for them, hasn't it? Um, As well as going out of the Champions League, they've lost this match. And the number of matches before that that you perhaps wouldn't have expected them to lose. Luton Town, of course. Um, and other than beating Fulham, they also lost to Tottenham as well. Where are we at with Newcastle now? Because it's been an interesting debate that we've had all year. Um, you could argue in terms of uh, narratives and storylines, they've been one of the teams of 2023. Is this actually just a reminder that in last season they overperformed Gregor and that this is probably where they're at? You know, because then it's, it's not a disaster. They're still eighth, 29 points, still only seven points behind fourth place. Is this actually just real, realistically where they're at or is there something worrying going on? I don't think it's something worrying, but I think it is kind of, you know, the instinct is it's a bit of a, an amalgamation of all the things that we've discussed were fears from for Newcastle United for a long time. A, the sort of, the fear of burnout and... You know, that's been compounded by the number of injuries they've had. Uh, and you can see that the players are running on empty, some players more so than other others. Um, and then there perhaps is a, a fear as well of a bit of a reversion to the mean for, for some players. The way that Newcastle were cut open, you know, by Forrest, um, particularly the third goal, that was just bizarre. I, you know, I know they're trying to play a high line, but there was no one in any way sort of aware of what Chris Wood was doing um, and he ran clear through to, to complete his hat-trick so you know those two things and then ultimately once they've you know they've gone out of 
of uh, competitions in a really kind of painful manner and as you say had a few bad results confidence dips as well so I think the combination of those three things means this is a difficult period for them but you know being out of Europe now you know having a little bit of a chance of going to be some players returning from injury and having a little bit of a chance to to sort of recuperate um, you know nurse some nurse some wounds I think we'll see Newcastle that we know and recognise return soon I don't think this is something that's going to be like a long-term decline. Alison, I wanted to get your take on Gregor's points there, whether you whether you think it's a worrying trend or you think he, they can bounce back. But I also wanted to ask you about um, Eddie Howe press conference before this week this weekend's set of games. I was editing on the Friday, the 22nd, and was speaking to Martin Hardy, who'd been to Eddie Howe's press conference, who kind of, and then Martin rang in and said, Okay, Tom, Eddie said this, this, and he did also say, you know, that he doesn't feel that there's a target on his back in terms of his future despite a bad run. And I said, well, I didn't think there was a target on his back, but I do now that he said it. Um, <laughs> and, it and maybe that is that just me being a cynical editor and thinking, trying to, trying to, you know, rile up some news stories, or is is that a kind of omnipresent thing in Eddie Howe's mind that ultimately, because of all the investment, all, all the potential, and all the ambition, that with these bad runs such as he achieved brilliant things last season, actually, there's always that looming sense of fear and doom uh, as part of his tenure. Well, it's it, that's interesting with Newcastle because we just don't know, do we? we th- this ownership, we've not seen how they react to poor results and disappointments. Uh, Eddie Howe was not who they had in mind straight away when they took over. They, they wanted someone with um, more star appeal, um, I mean, think back, Eddie Howe was considered to be a bit of a stopgap. He'll do for now while we slowly build the club and build its image around the world, you know, however long they think that's going to take. And they've really enjoyed the Saudi owners. They have really enjoyed the fact that it's looked like a masterstroke, that they got a, a coach in who really does know how to coach and get the best out of players who aren't all big name stars and there's a lot of homegrown element to it and getting the most out of players who were already there they're not part of the new project they Eddie Howe inherited them and they he got them to gel incredibly well and go on runs that no one foresaw so it's sort of been allowed to enter the atmosphere that that this is this is part of the organic growth of Newcastle, they will let the club grow naturally. Um, but so, but, but we just we have, we have no idea at all that this sort of run, you know, this isn't this isn't the image they want. It, they're, they're starting to look um, tired and despondent, and that there's a buoyancy to Newcastle, um, especially at St James's, which is sort of lacking a bit now. I think. I think Martin Hardy did make mention of it in his report, but I had also noticed, I thought Eddie Howe looks looks quite sort of ashen, looks worried. Um, he's not enjoying this at all. So uh, we, we simply don't know if they're the sort of owners who, the minute it gets tough, want to just want to bring in someone else or whether they're going to remember that they got lucky without Howe in the first place and they'll keep it going. Um, but also, they don't know if Eddie Howe has the ability to stop the rot 
and get them going again because there is a there's something about momentum and I think Newcastle had it you know they were the epitome of what can happen when you're a team playing greater than the sum of your parts and you, you know you're on a roll they were they were um, the team no one wanted to face and now they're the team everybody wants to face because they've just they've just the, the sparkle's gone it was too much for them to ask with the squad they had to take on the Champions League and a very demanding Premier League so um I I mean it's interesting I don't know I don't think you're wrong Tom I think I think I think you're right to think as soon as the manager starts talking about whether he's got a target on his back or not, then it is it is an issue in the room, definitely. Well, we wonder whether that issue will come up. And Gregor, you talk about uh, an uptick in form. At some point, they face Liverpool, Manchester City and Aston Villa uh, in their next three Premier League games. And they've got a local derby against Sunderland in the FA Cup third round sandwiched in between. Um, so interesting times for Newcastle fans, that's for sure. But before uh, Nottingham Forest fans throw their headphones across the room, a massive win for them and new manager Nuno Espirito Santo. Uh, Molly, I wanted to ask you about them because you've got an interesting statistic about one of their creative players who could be important in turning their season around. Yeah, I think um, probably me and any Nottingham Forest fan uh, that might be slightly romantic uh, was a bit sad to see, see Steve Cooper go and perhaps... Nuno was not the most exciting, you know, uh, I'm so delighted that he's going to become manager of our club sort of appointment. Um, and he's done really well, hasn't he? He's, he started well. And I think it's um, it's interesting to see, obviously, when, when there's a change of manager, there's always players that, that, that benefit uh, and don't benefit from, from that kind of thing. Sorry, my cat is really just doing laps around my house. So your cat, maybe maybe your cat's a massive <laughs> Steve Cooper fan and actually wasn't liking where you were going with this. Your cat's, your cat's saying, how dare you? He shouldn't have been sacked. Very upset. He's got the zoomies. Um, but no, I think somebody who really did have the zoomies uh, on the pitch was Anthony Alanga. Um, and I think you were talking there about, about Newcastle and, and their issues. Perhaps the, the real, I mean, Chris Wood was incredible but the real matchup that maybe decided this one was Dan Byrne starting at left back against the Langer and I think that sums up the issues for Newcastle at the moment with injuries with with squad depth maybe they've gone a little bit quicker into this project that they maybe would have done and therefore you end up with Dan Byrne at left back um and look at Langer so far this season he's got four goals five assists in the Premier League 15 million deal from Manchester United. He's only 21. And those goal contributions meant ahead of that 3-2 game last night, he had more of those than any of the Manchester United forwards combined. Um, And there was a little bit of discourse on football Twitter, as we shall call it, uh, Mm. about whether that meant Elanga should indeed have been sold or not. And I think maybe we always look at these things in, in slightly the wrong way because would he have been in an environment to to thrive at Manchester United right now, having we've just spent however many minutes discussing the sort of chaos that it currently is. Players are coming in and out of form. Really, none of the forwards have found any consistency. Actually, Alanga moving away from that, going to Forest, 
getting regular t- game time is is really showing what he can do actually and i think what's been clear with him is that he's always had a lot of promise it's been about the decision making um and actually getting those goal tr- contributions i think he's really showing that actually he is improving there and he, he looks like he could be a real player and it's going to be you know super important for them and particularly under a a, a nuno uh, philosophy that maybe doesn't involve controlling the ball uh, having huge amounts of the ball all the time I think he's going to be really important for Forrest moving forward especially on the counter with his pace and uh, yeah he's, he's he's showing he is maturing and he is finding that final ball but I don't think that means he should be at Manchester United it probably shows why he should have left yeah can absolutely. I can I just can I just say something about Nuno yes absolutely because because and and Gregor will will understand why I'm saying this because Gregor has more than anyone I think um, pointed out that that Steve Cooper had such a tricky job because of the amount of, of business that Forrest did and signed too many too many players when they got promotion and it was it was quite an overwhelming job but but you can flip it I think I think if I was Nuno I'd be absolutely chuffed to bits that I'd been offered the job at Forrest because he he can afford to come in sit back look at the array of talent at his disposal and cherry pick and start afresh without any of the baggage of who helped me get promotion and how am I going to juggle all these people and I didn't sign half of them so am I supposed to pretend that I'm really happy with who's come in he can just say thank you for the feast in front of me and he's got people like Gibbs White he's got Alanga you've spoken about but there's there's so many so many good players in that team that all you have to do if you're Nuno is pick the ones that fit your philosophy. He's got so much pace, so much pace. Make them feel like this is a fresh start. You're all amazing. And we that's what we saw. We saw it doesn't mean that Steve Cooper was rubbish. It just means that it probably means it was the right thing to do, weirdly, because I think if you get the right man in who can look at what he's got, there, there is there at Forest a really, really, really good team. Mm, very interesting. Uh, Gregor, as Alison mentioned, you were almost as upset as Molly's cat about Steve Cooper's departure. <laughs> um, yeah, what have you made of Nuno's start in light of some of the points that Molly and Alison have made? It's been a good start. I mean, you have to say they were very unlucky against Bournemouth, um, particularly with the, the, the red card that Willie Bolly received, which was an absolute nonsense, and then losing in the in the kind of in the last moments of the game. Um, and I watched this one and I was just thinking, like, you know, there has been a lot of revisionism about about Nuno. And I said when he was appointed that you ha- we have to remember how good his Wolves team were to watch for a long time. They were really, really well organised. And as, you know, Alison has mentioned there, the thing that his, his team were known for most were, was their pace. And you look at, you've got Hudson Adoy as well on the left there. If you can get a song out of Hudson Adoy, Alanga, Gibbs White, Look, Chris Wood had a good game. I'm not sure he's the answer up front. Um, Awonyi's return would be most welcome. But, that you know, there's the makings of a decent attacking unit there. And if he can get the kind of disciplined base, uh, then there's, there is the makings of something. There always was, I think. Um, and Alison's right. Being able to see, you know, say this is a clean slate. You saw Joe Worrell back on the pitch at the end, who was banished. Uh, Montiel, the, the, the fullback, he... he He'd been kind of completely disappeared, and he was he was playing in this game. Um, 
so that you know that does that does does do something. Um, but just yeah, I was just watching this, look, thinking back to the kind of Wolves teams with you know Adama Traore, Helder Costa, uh, Cavallero, Jota, you know some really exciting wingers, or kind of there was obviously an era where there were you know really attacking wing backs as well. So we know what his team, what he wants his team to look like, and I think there are the kind of makings of of uh, a team that can that can do something here. I think, but ultimately, I still haven't said all of that. <laughs> all the issues around them aren't going to change. I'd be amazed if they do. So I think his long-term uh, uh, kind of prospects as Nottingham Forest manager as the, are the same as they would be for any Nottingham Forest manager, and that's not great. More doom and gloom from Robertson. Sorry about that. Merry Christmas. We're going to have to try and up the the ante in the second half. But if you're a worried Newcastle fan or maybe a quietly optimistic Nottingham Forest fan and want to share your views or if you simply want to suggest some topics for us to cover in the new year, then get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. But for now, stick with us. Up next, we're talking about everyone's new favourite striker, Dominic Solanke. listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined by Molly Hudson, Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd. Now, if you're a team who is struggling for points or maybe a player out of form, who are you going to call? Alison Rudd, that's who. Get her down to interview you or write a piece on your team because not only did she go on to outline why Aston Villa were so good at home before they then dispatched Manchester City and Arsenal, she's such a good luck charm that she went and interviewed Dominic Solanke before he scored four goals in two wins for Bournemouth, including scoring a hat-trick against Nottingham Forest. Alison, never mind Dominic Sklankley, how do you do it? Well, actually, it's not coincidence. because I didn't think it would be. It's, I, I, um, I was at Bournemouth v Newcastle, spoke to the head of media, said I had a feeling that uh, Solanke could do well at Old Trafford, and we agreed that uh, it'd be a good idea that after that happened, and we laughed about it, that that would be a good time to interview him. And lo and behold, they win at Old Trafford for the first time in their history. 
and I can go there and everyone's very jolly and very pleased to see me and I help make them all feel very relaxed and so they go on and this amazing run so yeah it's not coincidence this is, I mean, this is I, what i do in fact my son my son joke that people will start paying me to interview their players that would be fun wouldn't it <laughs> i mean let's that's one we could, could save journalism in if that's where, where we're <laughs> heading to uh, <laughs> that'd be a good idea but no i and it was an excellent interview with solanke i particularly enjoyed on a personal level um, although I didn't follow through with the promise that he was talking about how many people had selected him in their fancy football teams, me included. Uh, and rather tragically, after your interview, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to make him captain for the match against Forest, And then did the classic fantasy football thing and bottled it 10 minutes before the deadline and changed it. And I'm, I'm not sure I'll ever forgive myself. That's going to hurt. What was he like as a person? Did he seem like someone who's at a point in their career where they feel like it's all coming together? Because it's been an interesting road to this point, hasn't it? Yeah. No, well, it was, it was, it was interesting because, yeah, he seems, he seems pretty chilled and agreed that he's in his best ever form. And he's one of those people who don't, you know, like there's thousands of them now come through the Chelsea Academy and don't make it. Um, and, and I mean, we both laughed because he, he scored 41 goals for the academy team and then said, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to improve to crack to, to crack the first team. I said, but what can you do better than scoring 41 goals? And he just said, well, we just all knew that wouldn't be enough. You know, you, you, to, to go from, to jump from the academy into the Chelsea first team is really hard. You do want, well, I do know why Chelsea have an academy. It's, it's a business model and it's a very successful one. But they don't seem to think that the players should jump from the academy to, to the first team. So they go, they just get sold or they go off on loan. And so he went to Liverpool. And again, I said that maybe that was stupid to do because you're just going to another big team. And he said he felt he was ready. Um, didn't quite work out for him there. But, but now, a long spell at Bournemouth, he, he is in the groove but that day the day i met him he said that iriola had asked him to go to the front of the class and to um on the whiteboard to explain to his teammates what you know what the tactical plan is and how he fitted into it and what he was supposed to do and he admitted he got a little bit of it wrong because it's quite complicated and that's why bournemouth started relatively poorly under the new manager. They were all getting used to someone who's very tactical, likes the detail, wants the players to remember quite a lot. And, and it takes time to do that. And he was, and Solanke was prepared to say, you know, I'm there, I'm almost there, I'm not quite there. I've all, almost got it right. He said it was, it was really hard to know when, because they press high, do they, when he needed to know where the positioning of his teammates, when to drop back, when to press. I'm sure that is quite hard to remember in the heat of battle, but he's they're getting there now. And it is one of the stories, I think, of the season that we were all prepared to say, oh, Bournemouth got it wrong, didn't they? Look, they shouldn't have sacked Gary O'Neill. But actually, they, they had faith in someone who had... And I think this is the topic of the year, is managers with very, very strong philosophies and that they don't give an inch... They, you know, basically, you, you've hired me. I'm going to do what I do, and Solanke is 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 the proof in the pudding. He is he's learnt the tactics. He's learnt how to do it, and it's unleashed him as the striker he 
always knew he was, who scored 41 goals in one season for the academy team. I hope that wasn't an impression of me as the de facto podcast host with a withering foot down about your Iola, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> moving on, exactly like you. just in case it was, uh, Molly, just finishing on Dominic Solanke, because he's a player that we mentioned with Tony Cascarino before, earlier in the season, where Tony said, you know, if he could get to a season where he maybe gets 10 or 15 goals, then he might be able to step up into that bracket alongside the likes of um, Ollie Watkins or Ivan Tony and players that we might consider uh, for England as Harry Kane's backup. He's got 13 now in 21 appearances this season. Do you think he's getting there or do you still think he's a way off? Yeah, I think I I, I watched a bit of Bournemouth last season. And obviously, as Ali touched on there, his, his role has changed and, and what is expected of him. But he, he never really had a bad game when you watched him. Even if he didn't score, he was always somebody that, that like... I imagine if I was a Premier League defender in in my dreams, uh, I wouldn't really want to play against. And um, another sort of stat that I, I kind of had to check to check that it was actually right. Um, the goals that he's just scored that you've mentioned, he's outscored eight out of 10 of Didier Drogba's Premier League seasons. And it's December, um, which is pretty remarkable. It certainly surprised me when I read that. Um, and look, I, th- I think he's, I think he's a really good player, and I think he, he, he just needed a run. And maybe sometimes you need a manager that that brings something out of you because clearly it, it was a, a very honest interview that he he gave with Ali, um, and clearly it, it's brought something out of him that he didn't know. He he's learning a lot, and you know sometimes I think we forget that 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 players under different managers under different staff can always find new bits of their game that maybe they haven't tried yet and I think just despite the the sort of long and windy path that he's taken to where he is I I, I think he's a he's a very very good player and look as with anybody it's about the consistency it's about can he do that in the second half of the season but I think he he has all of the qualities there and I think it is somebody that has been sort of threatening to do this for a little while and it's all sort of fell into place but I have to say, I'm I'm going to need to to have Ali's tip on how she does this because I feel like whenever I interview somebody, they either get injured or they don't score ever again. So I think if I'm more. I'm the curse, <laughs> if Ali is uh, Ali's the one that's rescuing it for us all. Alison, you up for a busy rest of the season? It sounds like you're the only person doing any interviews from now. <laughs> well, they are lining. They are they are queuing up to to beg me to go to their clubs now. So it's fine. It's all right. It's all good. It's all good. And with good reason, you can read that interview with Dominic Solanke by Alison, or the Rudster, as I should say. Sorry, I keep forgetting your new nickname, uh, on the Times website. Now, uh, I wanted to just conclude um, this section with talking about the other two matches and just kind of one question each. Gregor, Luton Town, they are rapidly becoming my kind of favourite Premier League team, Um, not only for their approach and for the way that they play, but some of the matches they end up being in are absolute thrillers. Um, a 3-2 win for them at Sheffield United. And I was kind of just reflecting at this kind of halfway point of the season that we're we're closing in on. They've got four wins. They could have also won other games against big teams. You know, they were leading against um, Liverpool. They gave Arsenal a great game. Yeah, Rob Edwards deserves a huge amount of credit, doesn't he? Because along with their other the other two teams who came up, it was kind of seemed like ah, they'll be rolled over very easily. And that is something that you definitely can't level against them, is it? No, absolutely. They've been. Look, I think they've always been in, and even from the start of the season, I remember being at the, the Brighton game. I think they lost three or four one, and and everyone thought, oh, like, you know, 
that's you know this is going to be Luton's uh, the story of Luton's season. But they were they were very much in that game, and they've been in pretty much every game. And this was a little bit fortunate, we have to say, particularly the the manner of the the two goals when Sheffield United were were two one up. Um, but before that, the the I, I I say again, I think they've been in every game, and they've got a really kind of solid structure. They've got that kind of the back three, and I, I'd say a midfield two now in Barkley and also um, Albert uh, Sambi Lakonga, who's who's coming to the team and has a little bit extra quality, and in, in that he can take it in kind of tight areas and and you know turn and move forward and get get Luton moving forward, as Barkley does as well. I think I think that's been a real kind of a real step change for them in recent weeks, uh, in that kind of that way of being able to transition from from back to front. Um, and I'd say Andros Townsend's added something too since he's come to the team. Just a bit of extra quality in in terms of his deliveries. Um, but yeah, look, and we can't not talk about Tom Lockyer as well and, and their sort of response since that happened and, and Rob Edwards' sort of leadership, it seems. You know, it's only a feeling, it's only a kind of a perception, but the, it feels like he's led the, led the players, the club, everyone brilliantly since that happened. And... You know they've had they've had back to back wins, um, so yeah, they were always a kind of. Rob Edwards is always also saying now he feels that they're changing the narrative around Luton Town, the club, a little bit. He's been saying that for a few weeks now, and he's absolutely right. The narrative was always that they're going to be a team of triers, but they'll go down. They won't. You know they they lack quality, and they 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 have lacked a bit of quality. But with players like Barclay, you know, stepping up Townsend a little bit. Uh, and that discipline shape, and the fact that they are a team of triers, it's going to give them a chance. Do you, just quickly on Barkley, he's a player you mentioned quite rightly and understandably there several times. Do you think he's we're going to start nudging into a conversation around England with the Euros coming up? That kind of midfield, that third midfield spot, because I think he's been excellent, particularly in those yeah. kind of transition moments yeah. as the kind of double pivot. It was something we talked about in a podcast with James Gearbrand previously. Is he in that conversation? Well, it, Henry interviewed him recently, didn't he? And he and he, he very much said he wants to be. Um, you know, he made that absolutely clear. Uh, I I don't know. I you know, I saw I actually saw a clip today with Southgate on social media saying why he feels the senior players in England squad are so important about setting the culture and and stuff. And I I think it's going to take a lot for him to shift people like you know Jordan Henderson, for example. Uh, I. You know, we can have a conversation about whether that's right or not, but Southgate feels that there's a pretty settled squad, I think, and and that those players offer something important. But Barclay is in great form, absolutely, and probably the more realistic conversation is what what happens from for him next season if he maintains this kind of form, because I think he probably could be playing at a better team, uh, you know, a bigger team than than Luton Town. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure England squad selection and team selection debates will be something we'll be having in 2024. Um, speaking of heading into the new year, Liverpool are currently top of the table. Depending how results go, they could stay there at New Year before they face Newcastle. Um, Alison, I just wanted to come to you on them. I've been speaking to Paul Joyce over the kind of festive period about pieces on Liverpool, uh, and he'd written several things, and including one around um, Christmas Day about Endo being another player, along with Mo Salah, who will depart to play for his country in the new year. That, combined with injuries um, that seem to be mounting up, I, the, the only question is, for them to stay in this kind of title race, do they need to make significant investment in January? 
No, I don't think so. But then it's my default position with Liverpool. I <laughs> Speaking with my fan hat on, I hate buying players. I don't like it. I think I, I don't know if I think it's ever cheating, or in deep, January. Um, no, well, certainly not in January. Um, but I just I never enjoy objectively transfers are fun. But when they're my team, I I it's it's, it's, it's something to do with um, my childhood. Is that people leaving and new people coming in? Very mistrustful of new people. Always have been. I like who's there already. I, I, but seriously, I, I mean, I am serious. That is true. But I, I don't feel, I don't feel Liverpool will invest heavily or even slightly. I think, I think they have, I think they have, a, they have enough. They have enough. You can always say, oh, you need cover, but you don't know where your next injury will come from. I don't think you buy in just because you've got players that you already knew were going to the, um, to play for their countries at this time of year. So that's that's just ridiculous. You can't do a knee jerk. Oh, I didn't realise Mo Salah with the Africa Cup of Nations. That's silly. So um that but that's why what was actually quite a dull game at Turf Moor, the interesting bit narrative wise, was that um Darwin scored and Jota scored and a reminder that Liverpool do have a plethora of attacking options and it will be okay because they will step up and Klopp's very good at making players who might feel fringe or might not feel quite ready because they've been injured or whatever the reason, he's very good at making them feel they are the heartbeat and are needed and it will be it will be fine. I don't, um, I really don't think it's necessary to spend in January to cover for people you knew who were going away and you can't predict where the injuries will come from, so what's the point? Yeah, I think Liverpool have the have probably the deepest squad in, in the league. Like look obviously look, Salah's obviously enormous. But they also have you know, they have young players who as opposed to being kind of people you, you don't know much about, you know very much that Harvey Elliott can be a really big impact player and as he was in this game, a starter. Uh the same about um Curtis Jones. You know, they're very much part of the first team squad, but they're young guys who are sort of on the fringes a lot of the time. And they've, as I said, they've got so many attacking options. They're not all in the best of form, but, you know, even Jota returning in this one and getting a goal is a reminder that they have a lot of of uh, of talented forward forward players. Salah's their best player, so that's going to be a blow. But um, I think if there's anywhere they need to sign a player, it's, it's in the centre of defence. But that's not always easy in January. There you go, Liverpool fans and Liverpool owners. Put your money away. There we go. That's uh, not what you need in the January sales. But uh, never mind. We can move on. And I wanted to end the podcast. And I mean, what a fun podcast it's been. We've had we've had the revelations of the Rudster. We've had Molly's cat getting involved. And just you know, just when you didn't think it could get any better, we're now going to finish with our end of year awards. Um, three categories. I'm going to start with match of the year. Um, I'm kind of expecting this will be matches that you guys have been to as reporters. Um, Alison, I'm going to start with you, your match of 2023. Well, I wasn't there. And so I feel bad picking a match I wasn't at. It's allowed. But I, ca- I cannot, cannot not mention Liverpool 7, Man United 0. Because... That was <laughs> that was it was historic. It was historic. I mean, it was hugely enjoyable, but it was historic. That's the biggest ever win in that in that 
in that fixture. So, you know, that's history. And it's one of the fixtures of football worldwide. And United had just won the Carabao Cup. So it wasn't like it was Liverpool defeating a United that were completely without hope. But it was just, it was just so hugely enjoyable. So if I, anyway, I took the question to mean, Tom, if you had to watch one match through again, and I hate, I hate doing that. I, I, I hate replays, but um, I can't even watch a game as live if it's one minute out. I can't bear it. But anyway, uh, if you made me watch one match again, it would be the 7-0 in March. So I'm sticking by it. There you go, Manchester United fans. We thought we were starting this episode with some good news about a comeback victory and Alison has managed to end it with reminding you about that time you lost 7-0 to Liverpool, uh, which is fair enough because it was a very significant performance. Gregor, your match of the year. My two favourite matches of the year have both been at Wrexham's racecourse uh, ground. If I had to, like, so there were two, obviously, Sheffield, Sheffield United and the FA Cup, which was, I think, a 3-0 all, all went to a replay. That was an absolute humdinger of a game. But Wrexham versus Notts County on Easter Monday was epic, like one for the ages. It was both teams tied on 100 points. Uh, both had scored more than 100 goals. You know, they were record-breaking seasons in any other season. Um, I think Wrexham had four games left to play, Notts County had three. Uh, and Wrexham had just lost for the first time in, I think, 29 games uh, three days earlier. So it kind of teed it up. And, you know, it was, the, it was billed as the biggest game in non-league history. And it was epic. County went one up. Wrexham came back, went 2-1 up. County levelled. Wrexham made it 3-2 with 12 minutes remaining. And then with 30 seconds of six added minutes left, Notts County won a penalty. And forty-year-old Ben Foster, who'd come out of retirement, I think a month, a month-ish earlier, saved it, and that, you know, catapulted them towards uh, promotion back to the football league after fifteen years away. It was a kind of ah, just one of those frenzied, end-to-end helter-skelter games that is that are kind of very rare, uh, with so much riding on it as well, an absolute epic. Good game, but Gregor Robertson's brown nosing of Ryan Reynolds continues uh, and will not be permitted in 2024. Molly Hudson, your match of 2023, please. So I had a lot of fun in Australia for the Women's World Cup and there were some great matches. Uh, But when I'm at home, I've got my feet up. I'm thinking of the other poor Times reporter that is at this game. I just want chaos. I want all the goals. I just want like last minute rewrites. Give it all to someone that isn't me. And there were two games that embodied this this season, well, this year. Um, there was Liverpool v Tottenham, which Liverpool won 4-3. Uh, Liverpool were 3-0 up, Tottenham come back to 3-3, and then Liverpool won uh, 90 plus four minutes, I think it was, the winner. Um, that was great chaos. Uh, but the other one, I think, is probably my favourite one, was Arsenal-Bournemouth. Arsenal won it 3-2. There was a lot on the line. It was still when it was sort of like, is this going to be the game where they drop points and they're, they're kind of out of the title race? But it was the fact that Reese Nelson got the assists and then the goal. Because, you know, as if there's enough of these moments where you think you can't possibly write this in the Premier League, for it to just be like a random sort of bit part player that's that's not the person that you expect to really keep your team in a title battle that came off the bench to score the goal. It it was just 
it was just great fun. It was great chaos. And more importantly, I wasn't there writing the report and being very stressed. So I had a lovely time watching it. Lovely stuff. Uh, my favourite game of the year, um, Lincoln City 3, Port Vale 2 back in April. Um, it was my fiance's first match at the Lincoln's ground and means that she never has to go again because it won't get any better than that. Moving on, goal of the year, Alison Rudd. Goal of the year. Well, just to prove, you see, I think this is quite sweet, really, <laughs> because my game of the year was Liverpool defeating Manchester United 7-0. But my goal of the year is Garnacho's overhead kick at Goodison Park because... Not only was it an amazing goal, um, it was so against the narrative that it took you, literally took your breath away because Everton was supposed to be riled up, passionate, there to take Manchester, just rip Manchester United apart because they were so angry about the 10-point deduction. This is where the revenge began. It was going to be, um, you know, a cauldron of, of, of anger and United were going to buckle and they didn't and they were able to summon this amazing strike so um i think in terms of i think i mean there have been an array of astonishing goals this year lots and lots of beauty but so therefore i've added narrative into it and that this is the goal that had it lovely use of my favorite podcast word as well narrative um well, as you kind of had a bit of a pop at Everton fans, I'm going to mention my goal of the year, and that is Michael Keane's screamer for them to rescue a point against Tottenham. Uh, I was in the office watching it, and it was one of those, oh my God, Michael Keane's just smashed one in for the top corner. And also, it had the wonderful post-match analysis of where he was asked, what what, what made you think, what made you decide to go for this? Had you been practising it in training? And he just said, nah, I just thought, go on then. Uh, which is about the most wonderful thing that a defender could say when they've blasted one into the top corner. Speaking of defenders, Gregor Robertson, your goal of the season, goal of the year. I've gone for the narrative goal as well, because it was one I was at, which was Jared Bones' 90, 90th minute winner in the Conference League final in Prague. Just because of everything it meant. You saw Moisey here and down the touchline, absolute limbs in the way end. You know, first trophy for West Ham for 40 years. Bowen had started at Hereford. Moy's first ever trophy. We knew Declan Rice was going to be leaving. There was so much in that one moment, and after uh, you know following them the, that whole kind of campaign, a 90th minute winner in the final was pretty epic. Molly Hudson. Mine is Willian v Nottingham Forest, um, and firstly, it's just a, a quite extraordinary goal. Uh, I, I actually went back to check what, what Fulham's sort of website said about this, and they reckon there were eight players between Willian and the goal. And it, it's one of those goals that would make and probably did make one of the most fantastic football photographs of like, how the hell did the ball end up in the top bin here? Uh, he, he, sends, he sends one defender to the cleaners and then just absolutely boots it into the top corner. Um, and for me, as someone who who grew up in the sort of Chelsea era where where Willian was was a fantastic player, I always think it's a, a bit weird when somebody comes back to the league sort of nearing the end of their career. And this, for me, was like turning the clock back and just seeing what an absolutely unbelievable player Willian is on his day. Um, and yeah, just a, a brilliant goal. 
excellent shout and top use of top bins and sending the defenders to the cleaners as well there, Molly. Some really good sporting parlance that hopefully you're going to get into your match date copy when reporting for the Times. And finally, we finish with our player of 2023. Uh, I'm going for Declan Rice. Gregor mentioned there West Ham's Europa Conference League triumph, of which he played a massive part, and then getting a big money move to Arsenal, which and even managing in just a short space of time, seemingly to justify a hundred million pound price tag. I think that's pretty impressive for a whole year's work. Uh, Molly, your player of twenty twenty three. He has already been mentioned by Gregor. It is Jared Bowen. Um... Like similarly to, to what you were saying about Declan Rice, if, if we take into account the other competitions, um, his his part in that Conference League success was massive. Uh, this season, he's already got 11 goals and assist in 17 games. I think we sort of forget that West Ham haven't had a, a proper striker for, for what seems like forever. And he, he kind of stepped up. He did that role. And I think if there's one player in that team that like embodies hard work and skill and everything that David Moyes wants in an attacker, it is Jared Bowen. And he, he's just been incredibly consistent in a team that, you know, quite often don't always have it easy when they're coming up against teams with, you know, bigger budgets, bigger players. So I think he's he's been one that maybe still flies under the radar a little bit. Well, he won't be flying on the radar much longer if we keep nominating him for various awards on this podcast. Uh, Alison Rudd, your player of 2023. There is, there is only one player in the running to be the player of 2023, and that's Harry Kane, of course. I, I mean, goodness me. So he starts the season as the year. He starts the year as a Spurs player. He breaks uh, the Jimmy Greaves scoring record. Um, Jimmy Greaves was on 266, and in February, Harry made it 267. And then a month later, he becomes England's all-time record goal scorer. And then, and as per usual, scores stunning goals for Spurs. And then he leaves in uh, as one of those sort of stories that no one could quite believe he's going, what's happening, how will it leave his club? Will he be able to cope in Germany? How long will it take him to re, you know, adjust to a new country? Oh, we can't imagine Harry Gaines speaking German, um, eating sausages. We did all that. And then he, he just hit the ground running scoring goals just as beautifully he's just as prolific and no one at Spurs hates him because Spurs are in this new phase where they play all-out attack and yeah sure they miss him but they rarely talk about him because they're having so much fun without him so it's a win-win situation and the ease with which he has transitioned to the Bundesliga is uh, phenomenal. A very worthy mention. Gregor you're going to finish us off player of the year for you yeah i'm going with harry Kane's definite understudy as things stand uh ollie watkins england understudy that is um i think if you know if we're going in the calendar year his transformation has been pretty remarkable since emery came in i think he scored one goal in the season before he uh you know up until the point emery arrived um and he finished with 12 12 from January on last season, plus three assists and nine this season. So 21 goals in the calendar year in the league, which I think tied him with Dwight York, which is like a club record in the Premier League era from about 25 years ago, um, which he can still beat. Um, and I think also just from watching Villa a good few times this season, um, it's the intelligence of his play now as well. I think, you know, we 
Harry Kane offers you know so much to England, but I think the the per, the player who can sort of come closest to offering that is is now Ollie Watkins because of the way he can in this team he's now asked to not only run in behind but drop deep and sort of kind of almost play that number ten role at times as well. Um, I think he's been absolutely transformed under Unai Emery, so I would say Ollie Watkins. There you go, listeners. One thing we can be certain of in 2024, after four players of the year, all mentioned, all different, but all English, Gareth's going to bring it home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there, here's hoping. Uh, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Molly Hudson, thank you very much for joining me. Whoever's cat, Jingle Bells, that has been. I've really, really enjoyed it, Molly Hudson. Thank you, <laughs> Cat, as well, for their guest appearance. Uh, and thank you, too, for listening. It's been wonderful to have you with us. Have a very happy new year, and we'll be back in 2024. See you then. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.